Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. You know, there's a lot you can do to increase the value of your company leading up to its sale. You know, uh, create some recurring revenue, make sure you're not overly reliant on a single customer. But you know, when you actually go to sell your company, there is nothing that is going to drive up the price of your business faster than having competitive tension for your deal. This means multiple companies vying to buy your business. And something Nathan Latka knew very well. Nathan is our next guest. And in a moment, you're gonna hear his story of how he sent one email that garnered seven offers to buy his business. To hear about that email and how he structured it, here's Nathan Latka. Nathan Latka, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. John, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, that's great. So let's talk about Heyo. You started this company in 2011. Awesome name, by the way. Where did it come from? What did you guys do? Well, so that was actually getting the, a four-letter pronounceable domain name is actually a big negotiation I'll talk about in a second. But what the business does, I launched it. You know, I was studying architecture at Virginia Tech. I launched this business because I was so insecure, John. Nobody was hiring architects. And I said, to heck if I'm going to go through five years of my life going getting a degree and not have a guaranteed job at the end. So I started pre-selling Facebook fan pages online just by cold calling uh, people and selling them. And I ended up selling 100 of them at 700 bucks a pop. And so my PayPal got pretty big. And this was, you know, I'm 19 years old. I started refunding everyone because I had no idea how to code or build the product. And finally, I bucked up and said, Nathan, it's worth it to learn. You got 70 grand in the bank that you can keep if you deliver the product. And we eventually built that into a software business, which helped people drag and drop together Facebook campaigns, specifically marketers, so they could avoid having to hire a coder. And that's the, that was the origin of Hale. That's it. Interesting. And so... Uh, you got into this business. Tell me a little bit about the progression. I mean, I know you got it. I think you got it up to about five million in sales before mm-hmm. you sold it. Is that right? Well, yeah. You know, I, and again, I don't. Uh, I'm not in like a New York or LA or one of these big business kind of cities, so it's hard for me to compare myself to people. But I, I, you know, I show kind of the business metrics to a lot of very, very successful business people, and they go, Nathan, we've never seen somebody at 20 build a business like this. So I mean, we grew it to you know over 10,000 monthly paying customers. It was a SaaS business, which is known as software as a service. Um, software as a service businesses these days, as in you know, it's you know March 2016 or April 2016, are getting Getting, you know, value valuations, which are typically top line annualized revenue multiplied by a multiple somewhere between five and 12 X, sometimes even higher. So it was a great business to be in. You know, we grew to 25 people, raised 550 grand in seed funding on a convertible note, which I'm happy to talk about in 2012 from some of the world's leading angel investors like David Cohen at Techstars. And then we ended up uh, raising another $2 million based off a cold email I sent to a Forbes billionaire. So we raised 2.5 million bucks, hit 5 million in sales, 25 team members, 10 thousand monthly paying customers and sold it in February 2016 when I turned 26. What's well, a lot to get done before your 30th birthday. I understand that was a goal of yours to get uh, a business sold by the time you're 30. Is that right? Well, and I'm upping the ante. My, my, you know, I, I am a guy that loves board games. Do you play Settlers of Catan, John, or any board games? I do. Well, my kid, I, I do the, the kids version. I play with my kids. Yeah. Okay. Well, see, you're not your dad, right? So you're not allowed to be competitive. I mean, you can't like spit out, like eat and spit out your kids and beat them to death in these board games. You have to be like nice dad that lets the kids win. I'm the opposite. I love winning. I love winning, winning, winning. So board games are like a, a small manifestation of what a business is for me. So once I hit that goal, my my what I'm now focused on is taking company public by the time I turn 30. So I've got three years to do it. 
Got it. And, and so I'm assuming you started something new after Heyo. Well, yeah, what I did, yeah, I have. So I'm, I'm actually thinking about something right now. And this ties back actually to the podcast that I'm running called The Top Entrepreneurs. John, people don't realize this, but I did that totally selfishly. I mean, I, I was expecting nobody to listen. I was doing it for myself so I could learn from the best. Because when I was emailing big, you know, successful people and saying, hey, can I talk to you one-on-one on a 15-minute on phone call? Nobody replied. But John, you know what I did next? I said, hey, can I interview you for my podcast? right? It's a whole different framing, right? You're giving something to them and it's a whole different framing mechanism. And my response rate went up by almost 10x. So I'm doing the podcast. I ask them hard questions like what was their revenue last year? How'd they do it? What were their margins? And now the show, it's six months old. It's done over a million downloads on iTunes. So I'm using, to go back to your question, I am using the podcast right now to kind of research many different business areas. And in the very near future, I'll go full force into one of these areas with the goal to start and take the company public, you know, by the time I and 30. Got it. Well, that's oh, good luck for you. And uh, it's, a, it's an amazing goal and, and uh, glad we can be here on, on the journey with you. Tell, tell me, go back to, the, to, uh, to Hale for a second. Uh, it's 2012. Uh, talk to me about the convertible note. How did that, how was that structured? And, and maybe yep. explain for people who don't know what that is, uh, how, how to think about that. Sure. So when you're a starting entrepreneur, the reason you would raise a, you basically, if you want to raise money, you have a few different options. The ones that we took seriously were either selling, you know, 10% of the business for some amount of money, which is called an equity round. Typically people call that your series A, or if you're too early and maybe you're growing really fast and you don't want to have the tough conversation with an investor about what to value your company at, you'll do something called a convertible note, which helps you avoid the tough conversations about valuation with the investors. There's three critical terms in a convertible note, which include things like the discount rate. In other words, you know, how do you reward the investors that put money in early when you do do a priced equity round? And, you know, how does their money get treated once you do have a valuation? That's the discount rate reflects that. The second part is an interest rate, which is exactly what it sounds like. There's an 8% interest rate. So if someone put in 100 grand, again, that's, that's growing over time at an 8% rate um, until they either they call the note and we pay it back, which is very, very rare. Uh, investors won't do that because then no other entrepreneurs will ever take capital from them again. Rather, that 8% interest that's been accumulated will then convert into a Series A round, which we can talk about in a second. So you have interest rate at 8%. Discount rate for us was 25%. And we had a cap of $5 million, which basically just caps the, the money that those, those uh, investors are putting in. And John, this I have to just preface this by saying, I was not in, you know, I was not in, San Francisco or New York or Boston. I was in the Southwest mountains of Virginia and we got, some people say he's the smartest angel investor out there. David Cohen, the guy that created Techstars invested. We had Paul Singh and Dave McClure of 500 Startups invested. We had the founder of Rackspace invested. So we had an amazing group of angels put in 550K. And, and how did you raise that? Did you go on angel list or what was the mechanism through which you, you got that? So this was actually very interesting. Um, we didn't want to raise capital. We had no need to raise capital. Now, that's cheap advice. You know, anybody can say that. It makes me look good to say that, right? So let me break down what actually happened. As I was building the business, you know, moving my 19th to 20th birthday when I was, you know, still in school before I dropped out, whenever I went to a conference or a get together or had a podcast interview like this, if I was really impressed by the other people there, I would say, hey, John, like, I don't know how if we're going to be able to work together, but I'm building a business right now. I'd love to just 
monthly send you one email that will share with you all of our data, our revenue, financials, and things like that. And if you ever have any advice you want, just shoot us a reply, but you don't have to, and it will always take you less than two minutes to read. John, can I add you to that, to that monthly kind of list? Most people, John, would say yes, because they have nothing to lose, right? So I started building that list, and every month I'd send an update. And eventually what happened was people, I guess, you know, with money, started writing back saying, Nathan, you're growing 30 40% month over month in terms of revenue. Can we invest? And I'm going, what the heck does invest mean? If you teach me what investing means, maybe I'll let you do it, right? <laughs> so that my, and that was strategic as well because I knew if I could get people interested in investing to spend even more time coaching me, they would see me almost as their child, and everyone wants to support their children. So you got this this you know amazing all star list of angels to kind of kick in some cash. Tell me about the the second round where you raised a couple of million dollars off what sounds like a crazy email to uh, to a billionaire. Yeah. So his name, the billionaire's name was R.J. Kirk. Anybody can Google him right now. Last time I checked, he was number one thirty seven on the Forbes billionaire list. He created Adderall, the drug. So he was in biotech. I was in software. But what connected us was our location. He had come out of Virginia, I think the wealthiest man in Virginia. I had obviously come out of Virginia. And he was really wanting to get into, I think, some kind of software, right? So we were a natural kind of play for that. And what I did with him is I, I invited one of his colleagues that helped manage his money into our office in Blacksburg, Virginia. How did you this. find the colleague who helped manage his money? Uh, well, I knew that uh, it was gone through a thing called Third Security, which is the kind of the family office of RJ Kirk. Almost every billionaire has a family office, right? That's the quickest way to put a relationship with them. And you can uh, cold email them. I had to run into these people at an event, but I, you could also cold email them using a tool called emailhunter.io, which I use a lot. You just go to the website, push this little free plugin, and it'll list all the emails associated with that domain. And you can cold email. Keep those. I, I won't go into a ton of detail about how to phrase those emails to maximize response, but keep them very vague and short. Um, got a response, presented a wildly huge vision. I mean, basically articulating that we were going to go directly after Amazon with something around social commerce. Um, and that's what got them excited. If I had pitched something that was marginally better than what existed, he just wouldn't have been interested. So that's one thing I learned. You got to really, you know, when you look at a $2 million investment from somebody that's worth $3 billion, relatively speaking, you know, comparatively, that's equivalent to me buying a coffee, right? So, for, you know, to my net worth, the ratios. So you have to, you know, your entrepreneurs listening right now may be running a 500K or a million dollar business. You have to brainwash yourself to put yourself in the mind of the person you're talking to so you can understand how they're evaluating you. And that comes back down to empathy. So long story short, as we presented this opportunity to them, John, on a Thursday, got an email on a money that says we want to put $9 million in. And I said, we have no need for $9 million. The maximum we'll do is $2 bucks, And that's what we ended up doing. <laughs> I find that hard to believe. They they literally so this is the family office mm -hmm. that contacted you and said we want to invest nine million dollars based on the back of an email. Yep, and well, and just to be clear, it wasn't. They didn't say anything. They said we'll invest anywhere from five to nine million, right? So they gave a range. We 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 didn't need that much capital though, right? We 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 didn't really need any capital, to be quite honest with you. But I I knew I was going to learn by having these guys associated with the business. And this was someone you were pitching the family office. Correct. Yep. And was that, was that offer to, I mean, how, how seriously did you take that offer? I mean, pretty seriously. I mean, they, they wouldn't, you know, they had their reputation on the line. So if, so if they had put that out there and then taken it back away, you know, I could have easily leveraged the press to, you know, do some pretty bad damage to their name. I mean, it was, I mean, this was a, 
this is the kind of the biggest venture capital firm in Southwest Virginia because he's the wealthiest and it's a family office. So no, I took it very seriously. They, I mean, they were interested. We had a lot of people interested, to be honest with you, that wanted to invest. Hmm. So tell me about, so you've, you've got all this cash. I mean, you're swimming yep. in cash. Um, I mean, you've got, you mentioned you're about 5 million in sales, two and a half million dollars of capital. You've got a huge amount of kind of slush fund here. Mm-hmm. How did having all that money affect the way you ran the business day to day? It absolutely sucked. It absolutely, I will tell you why. You become less creative when the solution to every problem is throw money at it, right? So when I launch, and I will, and I'll have many, 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 many businesses over my life, you know, even if you have billions of dollars in the bank, you have to learn to set constraints around teams so that they can't just say, we're going to put money at it. You have to eliminate money from the equation and said, if we have no money, how would you do this? And really force people to believe you have no money, right? Because that's what's going to get people to be most creative. So what was the trigger that made you want to sell Heyo? Well, it was actually very, very simple. We missed the boat. 2012 was the hot year for exits in the social marketing space. You had big companies like Wildfire sell to Google for 300 million. Buddy Media sold to Salesforce for five or 600 million. Involver sold to Oracle for 200 million, I believe. And then uh, another company sold to Oracle for another 100 or 200 million bucks. That was the big exit year. We stayed in it because that year we were growing. I mean, we were growing month over month revenues, 30 and 40% that year. We didn't want to exit. So we had missed the boat. Growth went from 30 to 40%, uh, uh, you know, uh, month over month to like 5% month over month. And I very much felt I was in a position where, where, you know, I had learned my lessons kind of working with the venture capitalists and building the team. I also had a lot of, um, uh, uh, equity outstanding on the cap table. That was not what I call active equity, right? So any equity, that people have who are not actively building the business, like ex-co-founders who have since left, that's just, it's, it's efficiencies taking, you know, hits you. So when I first started the business, I gave 40% to two technical co-founders who both left the business one year or two years in, right? So I had basically after dilution, 32, 33% of unactive equity on the cap table, which just was horrible. I mean, it just, I hated it, right? If you're working hard on something, you want to own more of it. So I did something, I said, how can I sell the business without actually selling it? And so I did something kind of interesting. Um, we're very close actually, cause we're only, we're recording this interview about, you know, several months after it happened. So, um, but I'm happy to share it. I mean, what I did is I took all of the business development, uh, head of business development emails from people who I thought might be acquirers. There was about 20 of them, right? I put them in the BCC field in a Gmail, like a Gmail email. The subject line that I put was, Hey, is shutting down dot, dot, dot next steps. And the email I wrote looked like an email to our entire customer base articulating that we were shutting down and the reasons why we were shutting down. In my mind, this was going to trigger these business development guys to go, ooh, we can get Heyo. I sense blood in the water. We could probably get them for a great price, which is going to make me look good to our CEO, right? So that's what deal guys do in BD world. They wait for like, they need to find a deal. They have to have a reason to go back and tell their board. I think we can buy Hayo, And the reason we can get it for a great price is because they articulated they're shutting down, right? You have to give them that reason. And that's what happened of the 27 of them wrote back and said, Hey, Nathan, you bummed to hear you're shutting down. Um, it sounds like the business is still pretty healthy. You know, would you be interested in selling the assets? And I said, ah, oh, you know, I don't want to deal with it. Da, 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 da. But that's how we generated a lot of interest without actually selling ourselves, if that makes sense. 
It doesn't. I'm completely lost. So you you got this interest from these business development people by 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 basically feigning that the business was was going to be closed up. Total, yes, total opposite of what everyone always tells you, which is you never want to sell a business; you want to be bought. So, so how did you go from that to actually selling them? And what does that have to do with the cap table? Well, again, the the the, the cap table the re, the cap table was emotional. If you're building a business and you have two ex-co-founders not contribute on a daily basis that own 30%, doesn't it suck when you land a hundred grand deal and they're getting upside on that and they're not doing a damn thing? Do you see emotionally why, why that may have caused stress? Sure. Yeah. Okay, that, that, so that, that's the emotional side, right? So if we had gotten a great, you know, if we could see a potential for an exit, obviously we were going to take it. So uh, people always said, you, you can't sell your company. You have to be bought. You have to have leverage. And I'm like, well let me put myself in the mind of any of these BD guys. When they're looking for deals, they're looking for that. Exactly. Deals. So they're not going to buy a company if they saw that you just put out a press release that you're growing 30% month over month and you're super healthy with a ton of cash flow and low burn. They want to hear the founders are tired. The business is still healthy. Lots of customers, great brand, but the entrepreneurs don't want to stay with it anymore or the VC is unhappy. They need to figure out their lever point that's going to get them a great deal. So I said, let me just give that to them. Let me bluff that we're shutting down and see if we get a response. And that's what happened. <laughs> so you got this response, then what? So, so here was my thinking. Seven of the 20 wrote back and said, we're interested. I said, guys, I'm not really, I can't spend a lot of time on this. We've already kind of made the decision. I need you to give me an LOI, which is a letter of intent by Friday at 5 p.m. And I'll make a decision about signing one of those if any of them are interesting, right? So an LOI is basically the, you, you folks that listen to your show, John, obviously, I'm sure are familiar with the process. The LOI kicks off the sale process. Then you go into due diligence and then you have final, you know, purchase agreement and, and, and final docs. So of the seven, Two of them almost immediately gave me an LOI and then a day later, two more. So I had four LOIs in hand by Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, right? That same week. And my, what I articulated back was very simple. I said, Hey, just so you know, make a decision on Friday before I take your LOI. Is this your best offer? Right? Is this your best offer? Can you guess what happened next, John? I'm assuming they came back and said, no, let's up the ante a bit. Exactly. All four of, sorry, of the four of them, three of them wrote back and doubled their LOI, doubled the deal value of their LOI, doubled overnight by just, by just inserting a little bit of, of like, hey, you might not have the best offer. Is this your best offer? Right? Because see, what had happened at this point is in order for a BD guy to give me an LOI, they would have already had to put their butt on the line and brought this deal to their management team. So see, once you get the BD guy involved, if he loses the deal, it looks bad on him at his company. So he's incentivized at that point to, to get the deal done. Otherwise, again, it looks back to his board and to his executive team. So what, so, is, the, what is the ownership structure of Hayo at this point? So you mentioned you had the, the, the co-founders who had 40%, 30% after dilution. So how much did the VCs own? How much did you personally own? What, what, what was that looking like? Yeah, so, so I owned between 40 and 60%. The VCs owned between 10 and 20%, and angels owned between 10 and 20%. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it was, I mean, there, there was, there was nothing, this was not, a, the, the reason we sold had nothing to do with control or someone controlling something or, or anything like that. Uh, it was literally, we missed the market in 2012. Facebook apps were reliant on Facebook, which is always risky to build a business on. Um, and the other factors about outstanding equity, that kind of was an active equity. Got it. So you, you've got these four letters of intent, three of which came back would double the offer that they had in the original letter of intent. 
Where does the story go from there? Well, it, it, I said, you know what? If I just doubled my money with five words, is this your best offer? I should try it again. So I wrote back to those three. I said, hey, guy, this was on you know Thursday at this point. So I had basically had a day. I said, hey, just so you know, I appreciate your offer. It's not really competitive. I'm making a decision in less than 24 hours. This is your best offer. Two of them wrote back, doubled their offer and said, this is our final because they realized what I was doing, right? I was just going to keep saying, is this your best offer until they finally said yes, <laughs> right? So that's exactly what happened. I ended up signing one of those two. One of those happened to be a company called Vodago, which is based in Boulder. We went through due diligence and eventually they, again, purchased the company uh, after about uh, you know a couple months of due diligence. So what was the offer that Vodigo gave you? Yeah, so the I can't actually share what the total, like the actual deal value was, but what I can share with you is, again, we were a software as a service company. And at the time we sold, it was early 2016, most software as a service companies, if you had you know, a healthy retention rate, meaning if most of your customers stayed with you month over month, let's say 90, you know, 98% or more of your customers, 98% stayed with you month over month. And if you were growing somewhere between two and 5% month over month, and you had healthy lifetime value and other unit economics, you would, you would, you would sell for anywhere between, you know, five and on the low end and 12 on the high end X on top line annualized revenue. So to do that math quickly for your audience in a hypothetical situation, if we were doing, you know, $10 million a year, right? Our sale value would have been say 10 million. If our multiple was, let's say 10, we would have sold for a hundred million dollars, right? So that's a hypothetical, but that gives you a sense of how we worked it. Our multiple that we ended up selling for was 11 X of top line annualized revenue. And that is an enormous, Multiple. I mean, people will be listening to that and, and think that would be enormous multiple of, of EBITDA. Yep. Uh, well, it's not EBITDA. It's not EBITDA. No, no, I, re yeah. I realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and surprising, really, in the sense that, uh, you know, if we look at, I, I, think, I tend to agree with you, in 2012, we were seeing, you know, those, those five and six and seven and eight times top line revenue in terms of really healthy, fast growth SaaS companies. Um, but those, those multiples in, in 15 and early 16 have come off a lot. Um, where, where, you know, I've seen examples of, of businesses, uh, good, healthy, growing SaaS companies selling for three and four times top line revenue in 2016. So you guys getting 11 is, is astronomical. Well, it's an, I would just say this, it is an art. It is not, it is not pro formas. It, you know, it, here's what I like to say. Getting the initial LOI is a math equation. It's a, you know, they're, they have a pro forma. They're putting in some numbers. Boom, boom, boom. Yes or no, should we make an offer? But after that BD guy has one, you know, on the Monday morning management meeting when he says, hey, guys, I'm talking to a CEO named Nathan at Heyo. They're thinking about selling. They're in our space. I think we should do the deal. The second that BD guy puts his name on the line and, and even mentions the acquisition to his executive team, it becomes an art. And you're then managing egos, and you're trying to create a bidding war. Talk a little bit about the way you handled it with employees, because you took a very transparent sort of approach to the way you managed this acquisition. Oh, you did, did you? How, how do you know that? Did you listen? Yeah, no, I've listened to uh, to the three part series. I encourage anybody listening to this to listen to Nathan's three part series on selling this company. Um, it's great, great story, and and, and you know, again, very transparent. So talk a little yeah. bit about that. Well, this was a very, there, you know, there were people that were very unhappy uh, that I did this, uh, you know, people that don't want their names out there as angel investors or VCs. But the problem, here's the thing. I felt like I had to share the acquisition story live as it was happening, John, because what most people that get a lot of wealth or power or influence do 
is they tell their stories 10 or 11 years after it happens and they sensationalize them. You know, for lack of a better word, they lie. They don't do it on purpose, but they lie because they, they just don't tell the full story. So I thought that it would be tremendously valuable as part of the LOI to say, hey guys, I want to record the whole negotiation and publish it on my podcast. So literally my phone calls to employees, my negotiations with the BD guys and people that were acquiring us. I mean, at one point they're cussing me out on the phone, which again, it's all recorded. I recorded it all, published it on my podcast, the top entrepreneurs on iTunes. But if they specifically want to hone in on those episodes where I was negotiating, John, your, your listeners can listen to that at nathanlacka.com forward slash sold. And to go back to your original question, I chose to let the entire team get exposed to the whole process after I collected the four LOIs. So I sat down with them. I showed them the LOIs. I said, Chris, Christina, everybody else, what do you think we should do? And John, the reason I did that is because people stick with leaders much longer than any individual business. And I'm young, right? I'm 26. If I'm not investing in people, right? I have an 80-year payback period on relationships and people that I truly invest in. So I was going, even if Hey All blows up, the fact that these people working with me will be able to see and learn from an acquisition process, you know, and full transparency, that will create a bond that we'll have. We'll be able to build many, many businesses together over future years. So it was a long-term investment in my people. And so did you get into details like, you know, what the offer was and how, you know, oh, yeah. what multiple of revenue? So those employees uh -huh. know the, the, the details. Total. Yep. All of it. Yep. And so how did that impact your relationships with them as, as human beings, people that you go for coffee with or grab a beer with? Well, they appreciate it, but I'll tell you this, there's also risk to doing that, right? Because, you know, let's say an employee is worried that they won't have a job after the acquisition. Well, what if they, the second I tell them that it's even a possibility, right, when it still might not even happen, what if they go find another job, right? And then the acquisition doesn't go through, then what? Uh-oh, right? You lose a lot of leverage. Um, and, you know, that happened with, with, you know, thankfully the deal closed, but we did have one or two employees that made that decision. One of them was expecting a baby that we didn't know about. So that made perfect sense, but there are risks to it. I just think y y there's more upside to being totally transparent and just solving the problems as they arise than there is to trying to hide everything and surprising everybody. It's surprising. By the way, do you agree? You talk to a lot of people that sell companies. What do people typically do? Uh, they do one of two things. I think, uh, they're either very transparent and, and oftentimes that's older entrepreneurs. So people who are sort of 65, uh, years old and, and they, you know, they're pretty transparent. They say, look, I, you know, I want to, I want to retire and therefore I want to sell. And, and people get that and they understand, Hey, this, this person should, should have a comfortable retirement. They've given me a job and, and they're, they're not resentful. Um, and then there's a, I think a bigger camp that, uh, that don't say anything to anybody and it, and it, uh, it generally goes through you know, this, this sense of duplicity, like a cheating spouse, you're, you're, you're going through this whole due diligence process, not telling anybody. And there's a, there's a sense of, uh, uh, of, of deceit that, that, uh, that they feel that they're not being completely truthful for their employees, but they're doing it because they know that a bunch of deals don't go through. So I, I, yep. it, it tends to be quite polarizing. It's very, very difficult. I'm actually curious you, you, because you study this age-wise folks you have on your show that have sold businesses. Am I on the younger end? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we've yeah. had, uh, we, we've had the broad range. We've had lots, we've had some 20 somethings, but we've also had, you know, it, it would be much more typical to have, uh, somewhat older businesses, business owners. Um, and so that's, 
that's pretty um it's pretty rare to have someone so young to uh to sell a business yeah what I well, find- my point is i wouldn't take any of this for like oh nathan did it this way i should copy it this is just what worked really well for me uh and you have to put it through your own kind of lens and determine which parts and pieces might work well for you what i find really interesting um is how transparent you were with your employees and and forgive me for saying this, but I can't think sure. of a more subtle way of spinning it, but how duplicitous and almost, almost, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, with the BD guys? Yeah. We, yeah. Almost, uh, I can't think of a right word, but, but, but certainly manipulative, <laughs> manipulative strategic. Would be strategic would be a charitable way of saying yeah. it. Manipulative might be, might be a, a, a more accurate way because, it, you know, you, you certainly were, were not sort of upfront and truthful without. Yeah, I mean, look, the the when you study business, right, and and just you know business deals in general, the you know the give and take of getting people to the table and getting deals done and creating competition and and you know you know should we should we fold the company or not fold the company or what should we do? I mean, people do. People might not talk about it how I'm talking about it, but John, I think this is this is how it happens. I mean, it's how it happens. I we. You know, the alternative was maybe we've shut the business down at this point because we missed the boat and nobody has jobs and nobody saw any return, you know? And by the way, the, Vodigo loves the deal. I mean, if you go to Heyo.com, you look at the press release they put out, they're crushing it. They're growing like crazy. They got, a, they got a great deal. They're very happy. I was wondering how that would play out because obviously you've been very public about the way you negotiated it. Uh, sort of with just a flip of an email, you were like, hey, this, is, this offer's not good enough, and they doubled it, and they doubled it again. I was wondering if there was a sense from Vodigo if they thought maybe we got duped. Well, I think, look, all of it's truthful, right? I mean, we had other offers. We had other LOIs. You know, you know some of the listeners might be listening to this going, oh my God, I could never do that. Well, guess what, guys? I mean, that's how you maximize an offer. I would never recommend, John, that people do this, and they actually don't have any you know, other LOIs on the table, right? Maybe they have one person and they want to act like they have another to get the one to bid up. You, that's really risky, right? Some people still do that, but that's really risky because if one falls through, you're, you're cooked. But I, you want to, you want to, like a, like a wet towel, you want to squeeze all that value. You put your heart and soul into the business. You want to make sure at that finish line that you are squeezing every ounce of value you possibly can out of it. And that's what I felt like I was doing. It's called a BATNA guys. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yep. it stands for best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Basically what Nathan's saying is you've got to have a second uh, choice. You've got to have options, an, baby. Op- you know, an option, an alternative to go to. And that's what creates competitive tension. And really you only need one, but that, uh, but you had a number. I'm, I'm interested, how did your, you know, you, you had angel investors, you had very professional sort of money at the table in your company that invested, you know, significant sums of money. How did they, did you vet your, uh, your strategy of sending this BCC email to 20 BD guys? Did, did you run it by them? Uh, were they involved in that? Um, I don't know that I can say that because I don't know that they all would have endorsed it. Um, what I can tell you is that, you know, a lot of these BD guys I owned relationships with already. So once I had the LOIs to, I, as CEO, I thought it was my job to really get the LOIs at the table. The second we had that, you know, RVs, C's, our angels, everyone got very, very involved. In fact, David Cohen uh, and his people really helped negotiate the deal with Vodigo because Vodigo is there in Denver and Techstar's main office is there in Denver as well. Or Boulder, sorry. Got it. And so you felt it, you, it was sort of your job to get the letters of intent. Talk to me about how you identified the 20 or so uh, potential acquirers and, and then kind of wormed your way into figuring out who the BD guys were for those companies. 
Yeah, so it's a combination of when I had read that other companies in MySpace had sold, that these were the other bidders, right? So let me think of someone who was not at the table. Um, Oracle. So let's say Oracle was bidding for Buddy Media, but but Salesforce got Buddy Media. I reach out to Oracle and go, hey, I know you miss Buddy Media. We're a company like Buddy Media. Boom, boom, are you interested? Right, so I look at people that missed out on earlier deals. I would look at people who... Um, we always kept a list of people when they joined Hayo as customers, we'd ask, how'd you hear about us? And many times people would say, oh, we came from Vodigo or we came from Wildfire or we're switching from Sprout Social. So anyone where we were taking customers from other people, I called up, you know, those, those BD people were on the list as well. And then just anyone in the generally in the social marketing space. So, you know, top 10 Facebook fan page tools, boom, every BD guy on that list. I'm assuming the first round of offers were bottom feeders. So you exactly. Send, you send the 20 emails and they're all like, okay, I've got a great shot at getting this thing for a song. Exactly. Yeah. That's the key here. I want to make sure your audience pulls it up and you're, you're getting out of me with these, this, these great questions. I knew those initial offers were going to be offensive, right? To me reading them, right? I mean, they were, and they were, they were horribly offensive, but I knew that I had to get them to dip their big toe in the pool, right? Before I could try and pull a bunch of them in like completely, right? So, and I think it's really important by the way, like even to people listening right now, especially those that want to sell their company, but want to keep leverage while they sell it. I think this is a great, great way to do it. You got to get people emotionally invested with their big toe in the pool, which is, you know, again, even if it's a crappy offer and then trust your confidence that you're gonna be able to pit them against each other to get them to bid and increase their bid, right? To evaluation that becomes eventually a really, really good one. You gave them a deadline and said, hey, guys, you know, deals, deals happening on whatever it was Thursday and, and you've got to you know, make a decision here or up your offer to be competitive. Um, you know, that can backfire. That can backfire because some people would, you know, would view this as overplaying your hand and say, well, you know, I'm not, you know, some buyers, some acquirers would look at that and say, I don't want to participate in an auction and therefore I'm out have, you know, have at it. What gave you the confidence that, that you could push the envelope to that extent and, and actually give them a deadline and force them into an auction? Because I gave myself a hand of 52 cards, right? I wasn't trying to play poker with only a two card deck, right? The, the, the critical, the only way you can be hard in your red lines like that is, is if you have options so that if someone calls your red line, you can go to the other option. It's just like in war when somebody says, Russia, if you cross into you know, Ukraine, we will, you know, shut off your oil. You, you better be ready to actually, before you say that, you better already have the plan in place of what you're going to do when you shut the oil off. You have to emotionally and mentally be prepared to do that even before you say it. So we already knew, we had this whole little strategic map of if this, then this, then that, if this, then that kind of thing. You, so my point is you can't put up red lines like that and negotiate like I negotiated if you haven't given yourself a bunch of cards to deal with and play with. As you look back on it now, it sounds like John, you, you have to be, you're not, I love that you're going from question to question. I'm curious to you, you, this is what you do for a living. You talk to people. What, what are you, when I'm saying this, are you going, yeah, makes sense or no, this guy's crazy. No, I think it makes a hundred percent sense. I mean, it, okay. you, you, obviously you've got the more options you've got, the more hard ball you can play. I think when you were down to three offers and, and you went right back at all three and said, you've got to do better than this. And the deadline is this date. Um, 
I'm surprised all three kind of came back at you. I think you could have at that point uh, lost one or 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 two, and and, and well, only two, only two came back. Only two doubled their offer after that. So we had so we had two offers that were not the highest, and we had two offers that were the highest. Um, and then kind of we pit those against each other. And I'll also say, you know, you know, a line that people can use, and and this is like negotiation 101, is I would say things like, hey. You know, guys, I'm, you know, to the BD guys, I'm negotiating this deal and I have a fiduciary responsibility to my investors to maximize the deal. But I have a customer and community responsibility to make sure I get the right fit. So there were people of those companies that I thought, by the way, were the best fit for our customers, but they didn't have the highest deal. So I would tell them, you know, listen, if it was up to me and I had no investors, I'd do the deal with you because you're the best fit for our customers. But I can't do the deal because I have a fiduciary responsibility to my investors. Can you help me out and increase your offer a bit, right? So that kind of helps as well, having somebody above you that you can use this as an out. And it has to be a real person. You can't make that up. Hey, guys, uh, Nathan's just left you with a, a real kind of uh, a nugget of wisdom here. I want to make sure you heard that. And that is that, you know, it can be very tempting to negotiate these things on your own. And then it becomes sort of a person like, Nathan, why aren't you accepting our offer? This yep. is a great offer. You know, how dare you want more? You greedy, uh -huh. blah, 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 blah. It's great for for you to be able to turn back to that person on the other side of the negotiation table and say, hold on, I'm just trying to do the best for my shareholders. Or I've got an advisory board. I've really got to run this past before I can accept anything. Some sort of Bosley type figure in the background that allows you to say, look, I've, I've really got to I've got other people. It's not just me making this decision. It's my shareholders. It's my advisory board. Again, that can give you a bit of a, a filter or, or a foil, I should say, in uh, in this negotiation. So I love that you brought that up, Nathan. Well, and John, first-time entrepreneurs, how, what, what would you say a big percentage of your listeners are first-time entrepreneurs? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. I, it, you know, we don't get the kind of detail on it, but I would, yeah. I would dare say that there are a lot of uh, you know, first-time sellers. I wouldn't say well, necessarily entrepreneurs. So I, would, I would tell you, many first-time sellers fall into this trap because early on in the process, the BD guy knows that this is a risk down the line that you use somebody else to kind of get one more feedback loop. So the BD guy will always ask something like, hey, Nathan, just want to make sure, like, do you have majority equity? Can you, are you the decision maker here? And as a first time entrepreneur selling, you know, hey, yeah, I'm the big dude. Your ego wants to say, yes, I'm making this decision. Yes, 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 yes. This is one of those times I have a huge ego, John. It can be an advantage and a disadvantage. You have to put that ego on the back burner and say, actually, you know, I'm going to, you know, you know, my team and my customers and my board is going to take my recommendation but ultimately, we're going to make a decision all together at the end. So BD guy, let's keep talking. Let's get to the best deal. And then I will recommend it if I think it's the best one to everybody else and we'll agree. But you have to, I just want to point that out. You, it's, you always want to have somebody else that's in, in the decision-making process. Otherwise, it's a bottleneck and a risk. That's a great point. Uh, as you look back on it, I mean, it sounds like you made a lot of amazing moves, shrewd negotiation, mercenary sort of approach. As you look back on it now, with hindsight being 2020, what would you do differently about the negotiation? What one thing would you maybe change if you could do it over again? Well, so look, I'm 26. I'm young. There's a lot I don't know. But John, I think I, I think the I nailed in terms of maximizing value. I nailed the negotiation. I don't I wouldn't change anything about how I did it. Here's what I would change, though. We were too cocky in 2012 when everybody else was exiting. We should have been more aggressive in 2012 at pursuing an exit. I didn't do that because I thought you had to wait for somebody to come to you. The fact of the matter is, I don't care how many books you read that tell you 
don't go ask to be acquired. You have to wait to be bought, all this baloney. You have to get the conversations off the ground and create momentum there so that that there's a path. You have to figure out a way to kick that off where you don't lose leverage. And the thing I would have changed, John, is I would have done this three years earlier. Got it. And and that just as a result of the the kind of external market environment, how how sexy and how in demand these companies were in 2012. I bet we could have gotten 15 or 16x just looking at the comparables of those four or five other exits I mentioned earlier in the interview. Hmm. Any trophies that you bought after you sold your company? I mean, at 26, you had a bucket of money. I mean, did you go out and buy anything special? (laughs) Absolutely not. I hate owning stuff. It weighs me down. I don't like cars. I don't like houses. I don't like owning things. Uh, What I will tell you is... I'm, you know, I'm putting my money into things that create kind of a waterfall for me. So I will only put my money in things that I can put in one unit of time and it's going to pay me back in one unit of cash repeatedly every month for the rest of my life. That's where you create leverage. So I'm doing things like real estate. I'm doing some unsexy things like following David Swenson's model at Yale. He runs their endowment. I'm following his kind of asset allocation mix, which is heavily reliant on index funds in the stock market over a long period of time with very, very low kind of exchange fees and exchange ratios. Um, And so that's where my focus is in terms of the money that I made. Where do people get in touch with you, Nathan? I know you've got NathanLatka.com. Is that the first best place to go? It is. And I also, you know, guys, go go check out the podcast. It's called The Top Entrepreneurs. It's a bright orange logo on iTunes. If you go check that out now, you'll hear I give my phone number out in the beginning of each episode. And then additionally, John, again, I, you know, I hit my guests. You listened to a few episodes. Did you hear any of them where I really had to go after any of the guests? No, I didn't. I, I, okay. I listened to a couple of the ones around around you selling, but no, nothing. And those were mostly well, your employees. So. There are, yeah. There are sometimes people that come on who on their website, it's like multimillionaire, do, 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 do. But what's risky about that is people will study that person thinking they're wealthy without understanding if they actually are. When I get them on my show and they don't know their numbers, John, I have no choice. I have to go hard. I mean, you have to go hard. You realize these people aren't actually successful. So, you know, sometimes the, they, the interviews get a little chancy and testy, but that's, you know, that's the reason I'm doing them. So I encourage people to check it out. And that transparency is something I want to do as well. So one of the things I've done is I'm actually, I published my 2012 tax returns, which is, you know, obviously my social security blacked out and everything. So people can see how I'm actually generating wealth personally, while I'm also being a CEO growing a SaaS company. Like how does, you know, if I make money in a SaaS company from my salary and an exit, how do I put that in real estate and how does it all flow back into my tax return? So they can get that by texting the word Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-M to 33444. That's Nathan to 33444. Fantastic. Do you plan How's that, John? It's awesome. And do you plan to publish your 2016 tax return? <laughs> yeah, I think what I'm going to do is I've kind of got them on a little bit of a delayed schedule, so I'm planning to always publish my tax returns about 2 years after they're they're done. Um, that way it separates myself from any, there are some risks in doing this. Okay. This is why, you know, presidential figures get beat to re- release them so they can be attacked. But I, I actually do plan to do that because I think it's the easiest way to educate. Got it. Again, give us the, give us the number and where we text that. It's Nathan to 33444. Nathan Lacka, thanks for joining us. You bet, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com.
John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.